The human race and the planet Earth are facing some incredibly serious threats, and often it is all we can do to confront those problems and try to come up with even stopgap solutions to hold some of those threats at bay. But anthropologist Martin Shainhaus wants us to think more hopefully. He has been pondering for many years the question of what makes human beings truly happy? And what is it about modern life, modern society, that prevents us from achieving more lasting happiness? He has gathered together his thoughts into a very provocative book called Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined, in which he spells out in disarming detail his ideas of what the planet Earth and the human race should look like in a utopia in which all of us would be happier. His book is published by Routledge. I asked him why this book has come together now. It's true that for years and years and years, even as a youngster, I would look around at the way that society was and wonder why it had to be the way that it was and think not only of the problems of society, um, but also ways that society could be different. And um, you gave a really nice introduction in framing the problems of so much discussion uh, among progressives and policymakers and academics. So many of the times we limit ourselves to just discussing those problems. And I really, really wanted to write a book that would talk about not only the problems, but the solutions. So it came from my own frustrations, both as an academic and as an activist, at hearing people discuss lots and lots of problems, but never give forth imaginative solutions. Right. You write in, in the first chapter, um, in, in, in reacting to what you observed as the reluctance and or inability of, of learned people to engage in this kind of, kind of thought. You, you ask, why did, why did such smart people, dedicated activists, find it so easy to criticize the world as it is, but find it so hard to talk about the world as it should be? This inability to think hopefully about society must change. One of the central points of your book from which your vision of utopia springs is the idea that inequality is the major cause of human unhappiness. Tell us more about what prompts you to make this statement that it is inequality that is at the root of so much uh, of, of what makes us unhappy. Okay. So I know that the advocacy of equality um, in my book is not something that's uh, new, of course. It's something many, many others have advocated. But what I wanted to do was to give that a scientific grounding rather than just um, put forth ideas about equality without first saying why equality is important, um, to me that's missing the boat. And so what I did is I looked uh, at the evolution of the emotions, and I found, uh, and it's a, it's a difficult subject to 
to investigate because emotions are things that don't leave um, hard traces in the fossil record. So there's a lot of putting together pieces. But generally, um, the pieces that I, with the help of biologists and other people who studied these issues, um, what we came up with is the following. And that is that uh, what are called dominance hierarchies among animals, um, that those are connected to the negative emotions of fear, anxiety, uh, submission, which is something like depression, and conflict. So when animals fight and establish a kind of hierarchy. And that arose early, early, early in the evolution of uh, animals. What came much later, probably with the evolution of the mammals, is a real mammalian specialty, and that is our capacity and our desire to nurture our own offspring and our desire and pleasure that we take in both being nurtured and nurturing. That's a real mammalian specialty, and it is reinforced by pleasure. And so that kind of pro-social, non-hierarchical nurturing is the mammalian specialty, and what it suggests then is that joy and happiness most likely evolved in conjunction with prosociality, with equality. Um, as the evolution of mammals continued, um, in humans, the capacity and the desire to nurture other humans generalized so that we want to nurture not just our own offspring, but other humans. And so the point there is to say that equality is scientifically connected to happiness in our evolutionary background, whereas hierarchy is connected to anxiety and depression. And one of the first points you make when you point to inequality as being a, a, a source of a lot of our problems is that uh, it is a problem for everybody in yes. a hierarchy uh, or a system of inequality. It's not just the people struggling at the bottom, but you argue that everybody, top to bottom, uh, is unhappy within a, a hierarchical structure. Tell us more about uh, the ways in which you believe this to be true. Yes, so this is a really important point, along with connecting uh, equality to happiness. The other thing I wanted to show is that hierarchy it leads to unhappiness, to anxiety and depression um, for those on the top as well as those on the bottom. And um, there's a lot of research that goes into showing that, to showing among animals that sometimes the dominant ones are every bit as anxious or more anxious than those who are lower down. Um, and we can see this as well in, in humans. Um, in India, the caste system, just as an example, India has a caste system. You're born into a given caste and you marry into that caste. Um, and the caste are distinguished by those at the top thinking that they're cleaner and more spiritually pure, those at the bottom thinking that they are polluted, or at least other people think that they're polluted. Um, the point here is that um, those at the top are the ones who feel the greatest nervousness and anxiety 
from conflict with those beneath them. And that's often the case in kind of status systems is that those at the top are every bit as much, if not more, um, in danger of falling or feeling that they're falling. This isn't to minimize the extreme um, immiseration of people at the bottom of any status hierarchy, but it is to say that all of us suffer. And in saying that, what we come to realize is that we have to change the entire hierarchy in order to make us all happy, because we all suffer when we live in an, in an inegalitarian society. Now, let me just stop you for a second to ask this. Uh, the way you are describing this makes it sound a little bit like nobody is happy, like there is no such thing <laughs> as a happy person that lives right. within a system in which everything is based in a hierarchy or in a right. system in where there is a, a great deal of inequality in, in lots of different facets. And there's probably a whole lot of people who would take serious exception with that. Uh, is that what you're saying? Are you saying that the people that we think of as happy or even that think of themselves as happy are not in fact happy? Or, or are you making a different kind of point here? I certainly wouldn't want to say that people who are happy are somehow deluded, although I think that there are lots of people um, who believe that they're content and, and maybe, but aren't as happy. A, a lot of us aren't as happy as we really can and should be because of the nature of society. So often um, there's a very individualistic discourse about happiness that says it's our individual circumstances that preclude us from reaching full happiness. And if only we can overcome those, earn enough money or the right kind of relationship or whatever, then we'll be fine. And what I want to show um, is that in addition to those individual circumstances, there are social circumstances that we all share that impact upon our happiness. And... Um, that impact upon us realizing the full capacity for joy that humans do in fact have. Hmm. I, I want to ask you about the whole matter of even talking about something like happiness, uh, because that's one point you make uh, in, in your first chapter, is that in a sense there has, uh, there has been a plenty of squeamishness around this topic. I think you're saying both kind of in general, it's something that we're not always real comfortable talking about. And certainly in the serious realms of, of, of upper academia, uh, it has also been uh, maybe a little bit, let's say, professionally risky to mm -hmm. uh, expend too much time and energy talking about a concept as sort of soft and squishy as people being happy. <laughs> and uh, you are really arguing forcefully uh, for us to, to not be squeamish, that, uh, that there's nothing more important than, than people being happy, and that it's something we should be talking about more seriously. Yes, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, sometimes those of us who are professors and researchers get squeamish about the very things that are most important in life. And um, it's happiness, but also in particular, there's a huge amount of squeamishness about talking about pleasure. Um, and I think perhaps that reflects some of the puritanical traditions that are very much with us, that somehow saying the word pleasure or talking about pleasure 
um, implies that we're talking about something um, that is somehow morally tainted, and yet it doesn't have to be that way, nor should, nor actually is it. Pleasure arose to reinforce adaptive behavior and in humans behavior that's not only important for ourselves, but also important for other humans. When we help other humans, we can and often do feel happiness. When we see someone else being happy, we humans are almost unique among ceases in feeling compassion, which means we can feel their happiness from it. Um, and so I think we need to reclaim um, the idea of utopia and happiness and pleasure and talk about them openly because there's nothing wrong with them. They are not morally tainted by any means. I'm not proposing something in which people are just indulging in their own pleasures, but a utopia in which people get pleasure from interacting in an affirmative and nurturing way with other humans. And that's a really important point. And one of the things you say is that uh, although we want to not make too simplistic our generalizations here, that in fact you have studied the notion of happiness across cultural lines and you find some very fundamental sources of happiness that seem to be true everywhere. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you, uh, whether you live in America or live in Botswana or live in South Korea, uh, that, that, that there are things that are simply basic, central to human life uh, that give people happiness. And, uh, and it's important to acknowledge that. Yes, it's, it's very important. Um, as an anthropologist, I um, recognize that there are cultural differences, and so the question is, what do people in China, for example, where I do my research, in urban China and rural China, what do they say? What do people in India say? And it turns out, and kind of not that surprisingly, that people have pretty similar answers. I remember asking a man in a really remote mountain place, um, what leads to happiness, and he said, you feel happy when people around who you, whom you respect think highly of you and give you respect back. They affirm you. They attend to you. And that's something that we all relate to, the need for kind of affirmative attention. And... Um, something that we all recognize that that kind of having good family and good friends is central to happiness. I've never had anyone say happiness comes from having a billion dollars. And of course, there may be people who think that and feel it, but the fact that they don't say it is interesting in and of itself, because it, it shows that they know at some level that that's not a real source of happiness or a legitimate source of happiness, perhaps and that the real happiness comes from relationships with other humans. Right. Uh, interactive joy is the richest yeah. sort of joy. I think you yeah. say in some other place that if there are differences across different cultures, it is sometimes the way in which someone will react to their own emotions. Yeah. The emotions themselves are not all that different, but in certain cultures... Uh, a person might be more apt to maybe shrink away from an emotion or tamp it down or or uh, or be embarrassed by it or 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 whatever but but that fundamental emotion 
is not mm-hmm. particularly different, nor the things that, uh, that, that cause that, that emotion. That, that's right. The, the basic kind of emotions that we all feel are felt by all humans, and it's the reactions that people have to emotions, especially, for example, to anger. There are a lot of cultures in which anger can be shown. There are a lot of cultures in which, uh, many more actually, in which anger is supposed to be suppressed and seen as a dangerous emotion. And so that's the level at which cultural difference often holds. So before we step into some of the more specifics of your your plan for utopia, your vision of utopia, I want to return to this notion that I find so fascinating that your contention of being that our emotional life as human beings uh, has evolved over the millennia, and you believe that those emotions have evolved, in your words, to make our behavior more flexible uh, and more, in a sense, more useful, more productive for our daily lives. Tell us more about uh, the way in which you believe this has played out, uh, the way in which our emotional lives have developed, become more complex, perhaps, or more sophisticated, or however you think that should be characterized, and, and, and exactly what that connection is then with uh, the benefit to our daily lives. Sure. So flexibility um, and the ability to learn and the ability to uh, respond differently to different kinds of social conditions, to different kinds of environments, is a hallmark of Homo sapiens, our species. And it's a good one. Um, And what that means is that when we are in certain kinds of social conditions, um, we can act really well, and certain kinds of social conditions will bring out the best in us. And that's part of the basis for my optimism about the possibility of a better society, that if social conditions are better, people will establish a kind of virtuous cycle of compassion and care for other people. And if I can give a very brief, quick tour of um, humans, I'll illustrate this point. We evolved as humans 200,000 years ago. And from that point up until about 6,000 years ago, there actually was no hierarchy. We lived in small groups as foraging people. Um, We got our food from the environment by hunting and gathering. Um, we shared everything of value with each other. We were cooperative, and there was very little hierarchy, both of the social class kind. Um, political hierarchy was not existent. In fact, leaders who were arrogant were shunned and sometimes even killed. And um, there was very little gender inequality. And so that is the human legacy. And it's only when conditions changed with the rise of agriculture, the development of property, Um, and warfare between groups in which one group would go to war with another group in a high population area and conquer that other group and enslave them, something that started roughly 6,000 years ago. It's only with that that we get hierarchy and the kind of zero-sum thinking about um, well-being that characterizes so much of life today. And so my point here is, in terms of flexibility, that we have the the capacity within us to act in 
and egalitarian way and to act with great compassion. And we often don't recognize that because so much of society around us looks so bleak today. But what we have to realize is that is the anomaly in human history and that our real legacy is one of equality and compassion. Hmm. Yes, you make this point very, very clearly that that uh, most of human history was spent with human beings living very differently than human beings live now. I don't remember the specific numbers you mm-hmm. shared, but it is really, in a sense, a, a, a brief heartbeat in the whole span of human history yeah. that we have chosen to live within this frame of a hierarchy of inequality and and in a sense what you would contend short-circuiting uh the 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 happiness and joy that uh, that is supposed to be part of our lives mm-hmm. absolutely we're, yeah. spe- we're speaking with martin shanehouse talking about his book work love and learning uh in utopia so let's talk about this notion of dreaming of of an entirely different way to live uh, hmm. and 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 of, of attaching the term utopia to it first of hmm. all uh, when did you start really thinking about framing this in in these terms utopian terms and and why did that make sense to you to 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 frame all of this in that way? Um, it made sense to me partly because we don't really have another word or concept for thinking about a broad and comprehensive way of changing society. And I felt um, that it was really important to put forth a kind of comprehensive plan for a different kind of society. One one of the things that that sometimes happens is progressives will write about economic reform but they don't say anything about reform of gender relations or of the nation state they don't talk about politics or we'll talk about political reform but we don't talk about reform of the schools and all of those things influence each other and so as an anthropologist hearing um, so many piecemeal kinds of descriptions of proposals that put people forth, even though they're often very good within their own domain, it frustrated me and made me think that it was really important to discuss the whole range of ways in which society could be changed, the whole domains, different domains. The the title of my work thus being Work, Love, and Learning, um, because I talk about work, love, and learning, as well as many other things, the media and other issues in my book. So it was out of my own frustration um, at hearing activists and activist academics talk that I felt that it was important to really talk about a full, bold proposal backed up by social science and with, by the way, very concrete proposals. One of the things that I really wanted to do was to talk about specific ideas that could be carried out so that I invite reader dialogue and action on those proposals. I hope that people read the book and become inspired by it and maybe try some experiments in their local communities with some of the ideas and propose their own ideas. Uh, 
the I I wonder what you uh, propose, and we'll we'll dig into a few specifics in a moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll, I'll just say at this point, what you propose involves very very sweeping, dramatic changes that mm-hmm. impact nearly every facet of of human life. Uh, do you propose this in a sense? Well, I, I want to say seriously, but I mean it's 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 obvious that you're serious. But I mm-hmm. think sometimes proposals are made not with any expectation whatsoever that they can ever be implemented, but mm-hmm. but they are proposed for for another reason. For instance, to, to just prompt us to think about things that we just haven't thought about before. Is it more the former or the latter or, or, or some other purpose uh, behind creating this, uh, this dramatic proposal for an entirely new world? Well, I'm going to do what my clever students do and say that it's both. Um, they love to <laughs> both when I give them a choice. <laughs> um, but but in, in all reality, I'm not just joking about that. I think that the thinking differently is a prelude to acting differently. And um, so when I talk about work being different, when I talk about thinking about the pleasures of work, it's, it's a really important thing to get us thinking about in order to get us to, to act in a different way with regard to work. And so I really do feel that this is something, um, obviously, that's an intentionally provocative uh, and that I am provoking that kind of thought but I do feel that that kind of thought about the things that we don't talk about is extremely important. Um, we all know how much, you know, any subject that's that's not brought up, you know, it used to be, of course, with cancer that people would say the big C or other things like that. When we don't talk about something, um, we kind of take it off the table in a really toxic sort of way. And so that's why I think the talking about it itself and the thinking about it is so important and is a prelude to action. What you propose in its totality is uh, a world and a way of living that I think it's safe to say most of us would not recognize. I mean, if we were to somehow magically step into your utopia, Mm -hmm. we would probably think we were on another planet or in an episode of Star Trek or The Twilight Zone or something. But, I mean, uh, your your proposals are, uh, and I mean this in the most positive sense of the world, mm-hmm. that radical. Mm-hmm. Um, do you envision the possibility that certain facets of this could be applicable? Or, or do you feel like, like th- this really is a matter of, of everything experiencing sweeping change in in really comprehensive fashion. I mean, is part of the point of it that everything must change? Of course, I'd like to see everything change, but I know that that doesn't necessarily happen. What I imagine happening is that there will be change that will occur in certain areas, and one that I want to focus on is work. we are moving, whether we like it or not, into an area of so much automation um, that more and more people are going to be put out of work. I know the unemployment rate is very low, 
But that's, of course, misleading, as most people know, because it doesn't take into account people have given up on work, and the worker participation rate um, is not very good for the United States. Uh, a lot of people have given up on work, and so they're not counted as unemployed. But with the coming of autonomous driving vehicles, for example, um, several million people who make a living as truck drivers, as car drivers, taxi drivers, whatever, could be put out of work. And so the question is not whether something is going to change, but what we will do about the change that comes about when so many of us are put out of work. Right. You At, at the center of your proposal in this chapter called Work in Utopia is, uh, first of all, you point out the fact that despite the fact that we spend so much of our time, most of us at least, working at work, uh, we don't seem to spend a whole lot of time worrying about being happy in our work yeah. and that this is something that needs to needs to change, that, that that needs to be the main point of our work is being happy in our work. And towards that end, you say that uh, one of the things that uh, needs to change is this whole notion of work being uh, obligatory. Yes. Yes, exactly. This is one of the things, um, when you asked me kind of the genesis of some of my ideas, I've, I've always been so frustrated and puzzled that work um, in the workplace and work in the school place um, are things that aren't acknowledged to be pleasurable. And we spend so much time in schools and in the workplace. Why shouldn't they be pleasurable? Why shouldn't they make us happy? I, I think that even progressives have a kind of certain aversion to talking about um, pleasure when it comes to work and school, and that derives, of course, from um, some of the, the Purita puritanical tradition, which says that work is virtuous precisely because it's a kind of asceticism. It's something at which we suffer. And um, that doesn't have to be true, and it shouldn't be true. Work should be something pleasurable. And one of the ways that you can make it pleasurable, an extremely important way, is to make it non-compulsory. If we all receive a basic subsistence so that we don't have to feel that if we lose our work that we're in danger of starvation or that our kids won't have enough um, uh, for what they need. I mean, those are tremendous fears, of course, that affect people in a profound way, and yet we put up with them. And... Um, I'm not a conservative, but if I can say a word to the conservatives, they too, I don't understand why they love to talk about freedom, but they don't talk about the freedom um, that should be freedom to work. That is, freedom to create according to your desires, not because someone else compels you to do so or, and or because you're compelled to do so by a fear that if you don't, that you'll starve. Um, it, it, it's to my mind, such an obvious sort of thing and such an intuitive thing and something that will have to happen as well because of all the people put out of work. We'll be producing so much as usual, um, and yet we'll have few people working, and that's a good thing. And we should use that as a luxury to rethink the relationship between work and subsistence. We can and should distribute the basic items of uh, subsistence, food, clothing, shelter, health care, to all humans throughout the world so that then they are free to take time 
to engage in creative activities of their own choosing. You, uh, one of the things I appreciate is that you make a proposal like this, and then you really try to take head on uh, the inevitable objections that mm-hmm. uh, that uh, that are surely raised. And I appreciate that you don't make these proposals uh, in 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 a, in a vacuum. So, in your mind, a utopia is a, is a world in a in a sense without rich people and poor people and middle class people, but basically everybody receiving the same and your particular job has nothing to do with how much money you would make. That would, in a sense, be taken off of the table. One of the objections you anticipate is that isn't this just kind of a welfare state then where nobody has any reason to work at all, that uh, that everybody would just stay home and, uh, and uh, read a book or play video games or whatever, but nobody would ever have a reason uh, to go to work. And uh, you suggest that that, is, that objection is based on a misassumption about why people work in the first place. That's right. I mean, if you look at some of the most um, profoundly important kind of social activities that people engage in, for example, parenting, a really hard thing, people don't need to be paid uh, to be parents. And yet they do it with great, great dedication. Not always, of course, but in the vast majority of cases. And um, uh, the things that people do for hobbies, for fun, because they're not paid, we don't define them as being work, and yet they're still contributing a great deal to society. I sing in a community choir, and we're very good. We're volunteers. We're very serious, and I think we make a big contribution to the community and yet we're not paid to do it. Think of all the things that people do. I remember all the people who came as volunteers um, to help out in 9-11, or I was in an area in India, a really poor area, where when there was a tsunami on the coast, these women gathered up money, the little money that they had, and they sent it to people on the coast. We do charitable things. We do activities. um, We do work, quote-unquote, that's not paid, for many reasons, not just for earning money. In fact, money is not a particularly good um, motivator for people to do things, and it distorts our activities in various ways. And so to say that we should be motivated by pleasure and by a desire to please and help other people, um, I'm not saying anything by any means that I think um, is actually all that radical. It's only radical because it hasn't been talked about more. The one objection that I'm not sure is exactly spelled out, I, I think it's 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 hinted at, is uh, what about uh, the work that needs to be done, but that nobody in their right mind would probably want to do. Uh, I mean, kind of the grimy work of 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 uh, collecting other people's garbage or cleaning other people's toilets or or whatever it might be. Uh, I mean, there's there is it it I think some might say that you are speaking from a position in which everything that one sees seems seems like worthwhile work that one does for a sense of satisfaction. But there are kinds of art, there are kinds of work that just don't offer up joy and satisfaction, and yet somebody needs to do them. They do. And I, I do look at, um, in agricultural work, the kinds of work that 
people often say that they don't want to engage in, um, what, how many hours it would take um, per month. And it's just a handful of hours or less that all of us would have to give as our kind of basic work requirement. Um, and it might not surprise anyone if I say that that basic re work requirement is not compulsory. It's strongly encouraged, but um, I don't use a kind of punishment if people don't engage in it. But the point that's really important is that it's a very small number of hours. And the other thing that, that's important is a lot of work that we see as grimy um, is only that way because of the kinds of hierarchies of society. I, I mean, in places where being a farmer and working in the dirt is seen, as in China, as a kind of low-status position, people don't want to do it. Um, but, of course, you know that there are many, many people are returning to farming after having gone to college because the idea of kind of doing something concrete and practical like growing food is, is a joy and a pleasure to a lot of people. So sometimes it's the conditions under which we think about an activity um, that affect how we treat that, that activity. And food production is something that's important for all of us and that should be shared equally. The burdens of food production should be shared equally, if in fact they even are burdens. Right. And of course, I think what I'm also touching on here is that society is full of work that most of us never see. Which doesn't mean that it isn't important, but it also, in, in some cases, is 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 work that is in no way, shape, or form play. Although, on the other hand, I think you're touching on the fact that maybe different people find pleasure in different kinds of of labor. That's true. There, there's an interesting kind of a practice in Japan where they have uh, corporate executives go into a strange community and knock on people's doors and volunteer to clean their toilets. And, of course, what could be worse than cleaning the toilets of someone you don't know? Um, but the point of the exercise is uh, the following, that Japanese want to get the corporate executives to realize that work and the way that we experience it depends on how we think about it. So, in fact, when someone finally says, okay, come on in and clean my toilets, the idea is that most people will feel finally accepted, like someone's finally asking me into their home, and you feel a certain pleasure at being accepted and being able to contribute by cleaning their toilets. The point being there that um, no activity, even maybe cleaning toilets, I don't know, we'd have to debate that, but even cleaning toilets, no activity is necessarily odious on its face, um, but it becomes that way when we define it. Uh, and constructed to be odious, and um, by removing the kind of hierarchy and stigma of different kinds of occupations, um, that will change dramatically. One of the things that you end up doing with this, and you spell it out yourself, is that you are doing away with the so-called meritocracy. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you say the question will no longer be raised, how good is someone at doing something? Uh, <laughs> this is something that's probably a pretty frightening prospect uh, for, for most of us, probably, that it seems like a meritocracy is one way that you end up with excellence. And if you take uh, that whole notion of merit uh, out of the equation, what happens to good old-fashioned excellence? 
Yes. Uh, so I know this is a provocative um, proposal on my part, but one of the things that we need to talk about is ways in which we define the meritorious um, that that are really distorting. I mean, we all know how many really good writers and musicians and other people like that, starving artists there are out there. I live in New York City, so I know a lot of them. Um, who go unrecognized for really, really good work. And I think one of the um, points that's so interesting about the, the shows, America's Got Talent and the, all the franchises around the world of that same show, is it showcases precisely the fact that there are meritorious people who have been working in things having nothing to do with their merits and with their merits going unrecognized. And so we live in a culture in which there's a kind of cult of celebrity and a winner-take-all status to attention. And I'm suggesting that, that um, merit and attention are much more democratically um, allocated to all of us than we, want, than we assume with our kind of winner-take-all um, way of thinking about things, and so that all of us are worth attending to. Um, and in fact, if we, we take kind of merit and status out of the motivating factors and put in place the desire for us to be responsible to other humans in whatever activity that we're undertaking, um, that that's a better way to get good performance from people, meritorious performance even, um, than kind of fame and fortune. Mm. I'm a musician, so I know that's true in music. There's a kind of, um, we always talk about how uh, competition winners play. They're the ones who are recognized as meritorious, and yet they play um, perfectly technically well, but often, not always, um, but a lot of times without genuine feeling. And um, one of my own piano teachers used to say that, you know, it's, it's really only when you have an audience that you're trying to please that you play really well, because then you're not thinking about well, if I hit a wrong note, someone will um, judge me to be lacking in merit. Right, and uh, part of your uh, part of your vision of utopia is where uh, everyone would have uh, whatever opportunities they they desire uh, to be up on that stage, and it would not be a strict hierarchy in which uh, there are arbiters that decide who who can be on that stage because they're good enough and you're not good enough and so on. Uh, it's yep. really interesting uh, proposition. But I, I have to touch on uh, two other areas real, really quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. In the matter of gender and sexuality, you are also calling for, uh, uh, among other things, uh, gender equality to the point that we... Uh, at least to some extent, abolish the categories of, of men and women. You seem to see that as, as counterproductive. What is gained by uh, even entertaining such a notion? So I wouldn't stop anyone from identifying themselves as male or female, but I do want to challenge the very idea of a binary gender system precisely because one of the things that we know is when you separate two groups, it, that separation becomes foundational to the ranking of one group over another. And so 
gender is a lot like a caste system, the caste system in India, in which the separation between the castes is the basis upon which um, one caste is ranked over another. And the same is true of gender. And what I am proposing is a kind of um, challenge to people to rethink the basis upon which um, they're attracted to other people, that it should be an attraction based upon uh, attraction to someone who's nice and someone who's compassionate. So I'm di directly challenging the idea that the nice person always finishes last, that the nice person um, is the last one someone wants to date. So many people, of course, date people who are dangerous um, to them psychologically or even physically. And um, what I want is a media that celebrates the neglected person and the compassionate person so that we have a kind of redistribution of attention to those people, a challenge to the celebrity culture, and a challenge to the hierarchical models that so often um, exist in gender, so that we come to see um, people not based upon where they fit on a gender hierarchy as a kind of uber man or uber woman, but rather where they fit as a, as a human, and to relate to them first as humans. Um, and to my mind, that is a, a critical piece. Um, How about... I know it's provocative, and I'm definitely being intentionally provocative. Right. And what about the matter of education? You are from the world of education. Very, yeah. very briefly, I'm afraid. Just touch on how you see the world of education being reshaped in your utopia. Well, of course, compulsion and hierarchy are central centerpieces to education, um, and they're things that corrupt the pleasures that students feel from education. They all know it. They all worry about grades, and um, I, as a professor, worry about <laughs> grades for them, too, and it really changes the and, and impacts the pleasures that they can feel from learning. So I, of course, will get rid of all the hierarchy um, that exists within the school as well, and I, I want to make school more connected to the world. Um, we all say that, but we don't always think about how to do it. But I would have students, for example, um, doing their own research on utopia, interviewing, for example, the elderly to see what makes them happy, what they need, and then making proposals and putting them into effect. That would be a good research project for a social science class that would have a very genuine purpose. Um, school has a purpose of credentialing people for jobs that's so disconnected um, from the things that we do in work that it becomes a kind of symbolic exercise that we engage in. We go through the motions of school, and I want school to have a genuine purpose to be non-compulsory and non-hierarchical. At the end of the day, what are your highest hopes for the difference that this book will make? I really hope that it opens up the discourse um, and gets us to talk about why equality is important and to rethink the nature of work, love, and learning and to inject the discourse of happiness and pleasure into those areas. And if it gets people to talk, and it gets people to talk with each other, um, then that is a prelude to their acting um, in groups with each other. My dream is that people will communicate with me. I put my email address on the first or second page of the book precisely for that reason. And as a non-hierarchical person, I really want to hear from readers. 
um, and hopefully groups of readers who decide that maybe they'll try out as a small local experiment one of my ideas. The book again is Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined, published by Routledge, the author Martin Shainhals. Professor Shainhals, thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show. What an interesting uh, program this has been. I am grateful for the opportunity to uh, have read your interesting book and to have this conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, Greg.